0: Hello listeners, I'm Aliyah with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall speaks with Suresh Rao, the former artistic director and co-founder of the Indian Summer Festival. They chat about his experience as a Himalayan mountain guide, as a book publisher in India, and as an organizer of arts festivals. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello,
1: welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a very special guest with us, Suresh Rao, the outgoing artistic director of the Indian Summer Festival. Welcome, Suresh.
2: Thanks, Am. And um, by outgoing, you mean that I'm no longer the artistic director, not just (laughs) sort of a... <laughs> cheerful <laughs> cheerful and extroverted yeah, yeah
1: you're you're in your sitting duck period <laughs> yeah good yeah. to be here yeah so i wondering if um, we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit
2: yeah it's interesting because i i find in introductions here as compared to introductions back home in india where i was born uh, you don't say much about your parents, except indigenous folks do. They always name their parents and their grandparents, and so that's such a huge part of introducing myself actually in India is like everyone's trying to figure out your lineage and where you are and how they know you and what you eat and where you might be placed. So I I you know, my my I was born in the south of India in Bangalore, which is a plateau of a thousand meters in the middle of generally tropical region of India, very far from the Northern Plains and the mountains and Punjab where a lot of folks um, from India who live in Vancouver and areas are from. And um, I spent most of my life there, I I grew up and you know, it's landscapes and fruits and seasons are what I know and came to um, Vancouver as an adult, Uh, I crossed the world for love, I met my partner, Laura Bispalko with whom I co-founded Indian Summer also in the south of India and uh, yeah so I've I've grown up I think in a in a culture of tropical excess if you see tropical fruits and flowers or tropical stories there's always plenty of unnecessary and I I think that's quite magical that's quite that's informed a lot of the way I think of art of the world you see these flowers and they're like, why the hell are you doing this? There's no reason. You're impressive as it is. You don't have to, you know, put out three tendrils and look like a spider and a parrot and something else. But it is that gorgeous filling of space, filling of the, the complete absence of blank space in story or in art. So that's, that's where I come from.
1: Uh, uh Sris, you know, here in, in Vancouver, of course, people know you as you and Laura as the founders of the Indian Summer Festival and the incredible markets left on the city. And full disclosure, I've been on the board for the last couple of years, but will be outgoing. So I've been involved, you know, from meeting you both on a Skype call many years ago. But you have this rich entire life you lived before you arrived here. And a lot of people in Vancouver know you from the festival, but don't necessarily know those parts of your of your life. Uh, you published many books. You worked as a publisher yourself. Uh, I know that you were a ma- mountaineer for a period of time. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with our audience, which is global, but also local, some of um, the things that you did before you arrived in Vancouver, because I think it's a really important part about how you approach festival curation and, and other work and the kind of ideas that you know, shaped you that you're still navigating and playing with and getting to the other side of?
2: Yeah, it's interesting how every act of travel requires a change of clothing. And so, you know, coming here, a very different cultural and geographic context from what I know, it feels like I brought a limited suitcase with me, you know. This is well, you know, the other thing is that you, you mentioned this before. Is like uh, you
1: never got called South Asian until you arrived in Vancouver. I became right? South Asian
2: <laughs> upon arrival. I never, you know, the, it was uh, never an identity. You know, growing up in India, surrounded by people who look like you, talk your language, it was South Asian. What's that? I mean, um, and then suddenly you you are placed in contrast to to all that's around. Me. Yeah, so I, I arrived like that. And my I think so much of this being here has been a learning. And I think to, to begin at the beginning, I think I started in India really at some point in my schooling. I went to a, a, an alternative school. It was, it was founded by the philosopher J. Krishnamurti. So it's quite similar to some of the Waldorf or Steiner schools. And a lot of it was about simply questioning things around you in a very considered way. And the thing I questioned when I came out of school was, am I just going to go into university and then do a couple of degrees and then end up, you know, working a job? Is that the line or can I do something else? And I felt that for myself, for some folks, it certainly was the right thing to do. And Uh, And they went that route. But for myself, um, I decided to seek out mentors who I was extremely moved by and ask if they would tolerate me in their presence for whatever period of time, you know, they were willing to have me there. Um, And it began uh, just after high school, which is all I've studied. I met this German engineer turned botanist who came to India in the '70s and a lot of those buses that went from you know london over overland through Afghanistan across Pakistan, landed up in Nepal and then in India and then he never left he Wolfgang Toyakov Tay- was his name, and he ended up in the middle of the rainforest in Kerala and began to see the degradation that was happening, the complete uh, lack of regard for plants. I mean, I think there was some amount of conservation for larger mammals or, uh, but but plants, rare plants were just being lost, species, hundreds of species being lost. And he was going to all these places where forests had been raised to create tea plantations. And he would nurture these little plants and come back and try and give them the same habitat he found them. And it was just such a, an act of love, like futile love, and it moved me so much to see that there was someone so obstinate and so able to carry this this thing of going and rescuing little gunny bags and spraying them with mist on bumpy jeeps and coming back and, and growing these plants. And so I said, I, I don't know if I necessarily want to be a, a botanist, but I want to be around you because he had an intensity um that that I felt I could learn from, and so for uh, for um, a season, I was in the monsoon in the in the rainforest of Kerala, basically doing whatever, picking up the shopping, carrying you know firewood and it was very very much that learn by by fetching water kind of in apprenticeship and then I went like that from mentor to mentor, and there were very many people who were extremely generous to someone who didn't offer much except that I'll hang around and do odd jobs, which I I guess everybody wants in some way. So yeah, I moved from there um, and through through friends and people who knew people. I ended up uh, apprenticing with this amazing ecologist and mountain climber in the Lake District in England and then with a martial arts expert in the Caucasus Mountains of Russia and it was it was an incredible time. It really I got such an education. You could, you
1: could have gone in. You could have become an ultimate fighting champion. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I I showed up in uh, near Sochi in uh, in Russia in ninety five, and that was around the time when it was just starting to change into now you know an rampant capitalist society that it is today. But that at that moment, they just didn't know what was going on. It was just on the cusp of all this change. So it was a fascinating time to be there. Moscow still didn't have a single store. I think the Adidas store might have opened as I was leaving, and there was like a big, you know, lineup for it. And everyone wondering, what the hell is this thing? There's a logo? What's a logo? And, yeah, and um, I spent a, a good time in the Caucasus Mountains, and it was an incredible incredible experience, really trying to learn to be in nature. Because as much as I love culture, I think my first love is just moving in nature. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to be a mountain guide. I've I've spent enough time in the mountains. I've always loved the outdoors. And I went and trained um, at the Nehru Institute of Mountaineering in the Indian Himalaya. And um, that's what I'm going to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, you must have some really uh, memorable times from mountaineering, whether it's uh, delegations of Russians or others, and probably was a, a source of some of your writing as well, at least some of it that I've read. But wondering if you have any stories you'd like to share from that period.
2: Mountaineering is, is really a crash course in colonialism. Everything about how it was set up and how it still is set up has so much to do with conquering of territory that uh, that empires sought, and and the Himalaya certainly was that crossroads of the Germans trying to climb Nanga Parbat, the Italians trying to climb K two, the British trying to get Mount Everest, and there it was high altitude warfare really, and that's how it was designed as as military expeditions. And then the exploitation of Sherpas and local folks and their knowledge while also having the complete erasure of their work in getting people to the top. It's just really, <laughs> you you take history, you compress it into a group of 20 people, you pitch it up at high altitude, and you get mountaineering. and And you learn a lot of lessons at high altitude because not only do you see... These larger forces at play in the, the dynamics between people becomes so heightened. Your awareness of their s- tiny irritations, like if someone just has a button loose on a pant flap, and you're climbing below them for a day, you may you may murder them for that. <laughs> because <laughs> 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 so in, in a weird way, it was really an exercise in in mother tincturing history and. And human consciousness, yeah, and I loved it. And at the times when you were not in the human world, you were in this incredible world of black and white, a world that, you know, a moonlit night on a snowfield with a few rocks, and you suddenly feel like you're just in this otherworldly landscape, and then one little glow of an orange tent with a light in it. There's something... um, I mean, the, the feeling that people get when you look up at the stars or how deep space photos and realize how tiny we are. Certainly, you know, that was there. How tiny and how annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: um, uh, Swish, in terms of um, starting your own um, writing and, and publishing books, when did that start for you?
2: Well, I came off down the mountain and bumped into a group of people who were brainstorming about getting a publishing house going. As far as I was concerned, it was a free place to sleep and get some food. Um, it was a—they were holding this retreat in a in a school in the valley, and that school uh, was linked to the school that I went to. So I had an inn, and I basically went there to to crash. But then there was this incredible collective of people in India who were beginning to feel that there weren't enough stories rooted in the Indian context. I mean, one of the things of us having had the British camp there for a few hundred years was that our education system was extremely directed towards the UK. And so we got a lot of, you know, um, a lot of the values that were there, a lot of the experiences that we read about uh, were not in our context at all. We were as children, reading literature that upheld somebody else's experience that had nothing of the familiar. And then, of course, India was also a socialist country in the 60s and 70s, so we got a lot of amazing Russian children's literature, which I love. I mean, I grew up on Cossack Mamaria and Baba Yaga and, you know, uh, fabulous, but again, not my experience. I mean, I used to read about the snow and in, when I was a child and wonder what that was. So there was this really, this feeling in India at that point that suddenly we had to find our own voices in things like children's literature. And, you know, certainly it was starting to happen in film and and in contemporary art. And so there was a movement of folks who were really starting to wonder what is our language. Because um, for people like me who were brought up in English-speaking milieus in large cities occupied this strange dual world. On the one hand, I was growing up with the stories that my grandparents or the local temple would tell, which were these myths and epics. Like I would listen to the Mahabharata, the great epic, which is bigger than the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. Indians will always say with pride, because Greeks could only do half the job we did. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's one of those, you, you grow up with a, with an oral storytelling culture that is deep and continuous, and then you have this very pre-World War II British education, and they're working side by side. And your mind is kind of split. Your soul is sort of split between these two realities. So I think a, a lot of people at that time were trying to understand how you dance between these two worlds. And do you feel on the outside of both, or is there is there some treasures you can you can smuggle across the borders of both? And that was really the you know how the publishing house began. It's called Tara Books, and it continues to this day. But it, in in many ways, it was to try and find uh, a voice that was spoke to this experience and brought that to kids.
1: And uh, wondering if you could speak a little bit to your own writing that you're doing at the time and some of the publishing projects you took on from others that you particularly are things that um, you you remember really well or something that you're really proud of, you know, obscure books that you were able to put into um, the public eye that may not otherwise have had the chance to have that type of circulation.
2: In my own work, of course, because of my background in working in, you know, forests and mountains, I always try to find a a way of speaking of the natural world in the books I did. So I I did a lot of books that linked somehow, especially for kids. But as I began to publish and understand what the act of publishing is and what the book actually is, as I began to meet indigenous artists from different parts of India, I realized that the book, as I understood it, and I always understood the book as a place of invitation, for many of the artists who are respected, the book for them was a fearful place, because books had always been used against them—books of law to imprison them, or books that you know talked down at them and had you know admonishments from strange and angry gods—and they were very suspicious of the book. And so um, I began to speak, especially with the, my friend Badru Sham who's from the Gond community in central India, and try to understand how could, say, something like an oral narrative or a nonlinear narrative find its way into the form of the book. Could the book, the notion of the book as a linear thing that you go from top to bottom, read from left to right, be exploded? And the challenge that he put to me was that, and then we began to make book these books made by hand that were almost like scrolls, you know? Like, you see this, it just... Uh, this is these these are this is um, Joydev and Moyna Chitrakar, who are um, Patwa from the uh, group um, group of painters called Patwas, and they create these things called pats. They're like wandering minstrels. They take stories that are around and then turn them into paintings and song. And so they they were actually professional storytellers who would go to villages and sing these things. And so it was like, okay, there is a Maybe the book really needs to be reimagined if it is to do justice to um, Indian ways of storytelling. And so that was extremely exciting to try and play with the very form of the book so that it no longer was trapped in structure. And then there was this book, The Nightlife of Trees, which um, again came out of conversations with um, my friend Badju and other members Uh, Durga Bhai and Ram Singh Gurweti from the Gorn community. So we're talking about trees and I was like, could you draw a tree? And they're like, what do you mean, could you draw a tree? There's no such thing as a tree. Is it a Mahua tree, a Banyan tree, a people tree? Like it's very, and I realized what an urban thing I just said, despite all my working in the forest of like draw a tree. And there was no such thing as a generic tree for them. And I realized that every tree that they knew was a character with stories. and. We did this book called The Night Life of Trees that speaks to the spirit that trees have at night after they've given shelter and fruit and shade when they when they live for themselves. So these are the working with artists from these old and sincere storytelling traditions. And I say sincere because they tell st- often they would tell stories of paint not in order to sell their art or to be in the marketplace, but simply to beautify their homes and to talk to each other about what they already knew. It was a pool of common experience that they were constantly repeating and invoking and adding authorship in their own way. And this too, to me, was like such a beautiful thing about oral storytelling cultures, is that they have little room for fundamentalism because they're not trapped in one book in one way of saying things and interpreted by only one class of people you suddenly have endless variations of the story you have the the story can be tweaked or innovated or corrupted in infinite ways which i think is so human, like such a, such a sustainable way of continuing legacies. Um, and then the other thing that really intrigued me was found art and kitsch like ephemera matchbox labels and sign painters on the street and other ways. And I mean, the Indian street is such a garrulous place. And to me, the best art is found on the street and not necessarily in galleries and it's where everybody has a say and if you anyone has ever been to india there is no regulation in terms of font and size and who can put what where it's just like signboards everywhere it's a it's such a such a life-giving thing and i came across this strange phenomenon of baby posters and it's just posters of cute babies like hand painted and a calendar to go with it and business houses would give these out as as compliments because uh, You know, it's just, they're just cute. And also in in a a country with, you know, several thousand gods and multiple religions, the most uh, secular thing was was a baby. But also because India has a very, places a particular weight on babyhood. Um, You know, India was a young nation and then you had these babies too. Like you have this farmer baby, soldier baby, doctor baby, so all the all the dreams of a nation on these chubby little shoulders. So, so it was a very fascinating thing in which I realized that you could literally take any piece of ephemera, whether that was matchbox labels or calendars, and begin to unearth a complex social history. And I myself and a few of my colleagues, and then it grew into many artists, started doing that and i think what we really were trying to do is capture a fast disappearing present in india as you know it became a free market economy and as the aesthetic and the storytelling became more and more in the grip of pretty much the same large corporations you see everywhere in the world we realized we were holding on to something that may not last um and all we could do was to to try and record it and treasure it and see if we could extend its life by giving it value.
1: Also, through your publishing work and in writing, have had a long um, uh, relationship to the Jaipur Literature Festival uh, in terms of moderating sessions and all of that. And, and sometimes people here um, don't realize the. The rich uh, public publishing um, history in, in India and also in the English language it, itself, in terms of Jaipur being the the largest uh, English language literature uh, festival in the, in the world, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to um, sort of your your times and, and memories from uh, that involvement and who you were able to, to 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 meet and be in conversation with.
2: Yeah, no, for sure, and um, yeah, I mean, I think these you know these books books began, these books began to open conversations and start taking us places. And I think one of the things that became early on with these books is that they, even though we were working in a tiny local context as a publishing house, this is Thara Books, and we were making some of these books by hand with handmade paper and silk screen printing them and mixing paint with giant cricket bats in, in, in a vat. It was such a tactile thing because these books are labels of love and but but we began to think very much of ourselves as a global voice as well. So we'd go to the Frankfurt Book Fair and Bologna Book Fair, London, Paris, and sell rights to these books. And we ended up, you know, working with the Getty Museum and the Museum of London and all these large institutions that saw what, you know, the, the precious thing that handmade books could do. But there was very few forums in India that that looked at it like that until the Jaipur Literature Festival came along. About 15 years ago, a group of folks, uh, William Dalrymple, the historian, Sanjoy Roy, a festival producer, and Namita Gokhale, a writer, and a few others sort of began to feel there needs to be a place in India for conversations of this kind. they started a literary festival, which had, I think, 20 people on stage and 20 people in the audience, which is a terrible ratio, as any event organizer will tell you. But it, it grew so quickly. It grew, in the next year was a couple of hundred, and I think I was in, involved from that year on, um, showing my books there. And suddenly the next year we had Salman Rushdie, and the next year the Dalai Lama, and then suddenly Oprah was there. So it, it, it kind of, in the way that sometimes festivals grow without you knowing what magic ingredients they have, Perhaps it was because there was not a forum like that. Perhaps it was because uh, Indian literature was suddenly everywhere on a global scale with writers like Arundhati Roy and Salman Rushdie, Amitabh Ghosh, Rohanth Mystery. Um But also because I think it happens in this... You've been there, Arm, um, to the Jaipur Lit Fest with me. It's this crumbling old palace. There's, you know, forts everywhere. And when I came here first... I, I expected a literary festival to be like that—that that, that elephants would shower you with rose petals as you walk through the door—and and that didn't happen. <laughs> and, but but yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a sense of celebration. There is a sense in Jaipur, I think, of ferment that that you really want in a festival, and always a surprise. And it had all those magical qualities and I became involved in the early days and began to host the main stage there and did that for seven or eight years and it was quite incredible to be, you know, welcoming the Dalai Lama or introducing Gloria Steinem and Oran Pamuk and I remember one year the the PR uh, for the festival, the, the guy from the festival who was running PR had a stroke and my partner Laura and I had to run the whole PR for the festival and we had to act as bodyguards, to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and uh, and Candice Bushnell. <laughs> so <laughs> very, it was a very diverse cast of um, folks that we saw there. And yeah, I think it. We we began Indian Summer Festival in Vancouver in partnership with the folks from the Jaipur Lit Fest. In fact, on that early Skype Skype call where we met you, we were trying to get your take on what a what a festival! How a festival like this would land in Vancouver, and whether there was a there was a space for it. And you said, "No, it's crazy," but I love you for it. So do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a fascinating uh, uh, call. And this is I had just started working at SFU, so this was sometime around 2011. But I love the bravado and the sheer daring of uh, attempting to to do that and uh, wondering if you can talk a little bit about the early years of the, the festival as you arrive because Vancouver you know in as much as it has these global pretensions and looking to the outside there's something about the Rockies uh, to the east the uh, border to the south that closes itself off to a bunch of the world as well it can be a very internal place and so to come in to attempt to do something new, there's um, there's a kind of welcoming, but there's also uh, a kind of borders and walls that go up uh, in these places because it doesn't imagine some things for itself. Uh, it, on the other hand, it can be a kind of clear palette where you can kind of uh, come in. And so wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the cycle of um, starting off uh, a festival in a new town.
2: <laughs> yeah, and when you the way you were speaking just now reminded me of something the writer Anushirani says It's like, Vancouver is a fabulous canvas, but you better bring your own paints. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> which I mean, you know, I think um, it's interesting because Vancouver, in so many ways, when I try to think of it in more Calvino esque terms, is actually a, a city with amnesia it feels like not only has it forgotten who it was because of the active silencing or ignoring of indigenous voices in the old stories here, which are really you know there and present in the landscape, and when we celebrate the landscape here or nature here, we're actually celebrating that stewardship, but people don't really see it that way. And then because it's a lot of people who have forgotten try to forget or are distanced from their homelands so i often get the feeling that you have a conversation you walk away and everyone's forgotten about it already so to if calvino were to work vancouver into invisible cities i think he would call it a city of earnest forgetfulness and but uh, but i you know uh, arrived here w- wanting to make it home because it was home to someone I love and I had no engagement with this place and so one of the best ways to do that is to start a festival because it, it urges you to throw out many conversations at once and people you know of course had prepared me for this thing that people like yourselves as' like You know, go easy, don't have too many expectations. But what was really nice, as you say, is also because of this blank canvas or because there isn't something like this, there was a great deal of interest. I mean, no festival grows simply because you think it's a good idea. It needs to find an echo, like especially especially a public thing like a festival requires many many people to buy into it and and to give it voice so i have to say like on the one hand it felt like yes it's it's uphill on the other hand couldn't have expected to take on we never we started it as a thing of a, let's see what happens if you try and create a cultural bridge um but it's uh yeah i mean I, you know we we created an element of surprise by saying, oh, we we showed up here in February. We're going to start a festival in July. We don't have an organization. We don't have funds. We don't have anything. But, oh, we have a venue because at that point, SFU Woodwards was going up and, and you were in there. And, uh, yeah, you remember in the early days, uh, we went to meetings at City Hall. Um, you, you took us to meet some folks there. And uh, I remember coming out of that and three days later expecting them to have – Disburse some money towards this obviously fabulous thing, and you're like, uh, "This is not India, man. It's not. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Maybe three years from now." But um, nevertheless, when you start a conversation and you're garrulous enough about it, and you bring some exciting people, it does find it does find echoes. And yeah, I'm really proud over the years that we've really, you know, made it a place of gathering. With deeply local roots, but with a with a very you know with a very global reach, we've um, have been thrilled to be able to present writers like Arundhati Roy and and Rushdie, and musicians and thinkers and filmmakers. So that was maybe perhaps um to think about the flavor of it. It's really that we we took it back to the root word of festival, which is feast, and we really extended an invite. I think to come and feast together and all good feasts have elements of nurture where you know what to expect and elements of surprise where you may eat something completely new and be seated next to a stranger. And I think that was the, that was the spirit. Mm
1: -hmm. And, and, you know, I I think, uh, you know, the early days of SFU, of course, Michael Stevens and Michael Boucher were um, involved and instrumental in bringing it. But I think that the, the, the memory that I have is the, the, um, opening night of the, the festival the kickoffs just to have uh, so many people uh, wearing clothes that have been sitting in their closet it really became a place to uh, see and be seen like that kind of uh, sense of joyous hospitality that you uh, brought to the city but I think the other mark of it from a curatorial point of view is that it really became a multi-arts festival in so many different disciplines and also that it was embraced by people beyond the the South Asian diaspora, just because of the curatorial approach that you took in terms of like what what does the festival do when you invite people in and bring them together? And wondering if you can speak a little bit to that curatorial approach that that you took, because I think that has been a, a signature quality of it, and also its internationalism, and also in a city that in Vancouver where you have a large Punjabi Sikh. Um, diaspora here to have a pan-Indian vision of a, of a festival, which also sort of set it apart uh, in many ways and trying to bring those two together in a way that is community building and building the the complexity of the, the art sector in that area as well.
2: It's interesting you say, you know, when you think of festivities or people being proud to come out and wear their clothing, it should never be discounted how important making space for celebration is, especially for communities whose celebrations have been mocked or repressed. And that was certainly clear in this context. I could see a lot of folks who who grew up here and almost every single one of them from the South Asian community would say, I've been told my food smells funny or my parents dress strange or talk strange. There's a huge amount of cultural shame. And so Being able to authentically and joyfully be in public is a healing and and an elixir that should not be ignored. And how to create space for that is you find your way to it. You kind of have to create, I think, the conditions for, you know, at Indian Summer, we describe it as radical hospitality is how do you create a space for gathering that is welcoming but also communicates to those there that you will fight for their right to be what they are because a space can't just invite randomly people who don't belong and say, oh, all of you be in a room together. You have to have the courage to set the tone for that place and defend people's right to be all their selves in that space. And I think um, from the point of view of curating, it was important, I think, to me, A, that it's not about India. It's, first of all, South Asia in general, despite the name, which I think the name Indian summer has been problematic in so many ways to myself and to others. And we've kind of, you know, just inertia and lethargy (laughs) to not change it. And perhaps it really, I mean, it, it does actually irk me to the point that I wonder why we haven't. But um, that's now someone else's, else's uh, weight to bear, but um, and I do hope that it happens because it is really it was always about looking at South Asia as a whole. But we had writers and thinkers from Iran, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and recognizing that the liberation and celebration of South Asian experience here or globally or this moment of reinvention after centuries of colonialism, can't be done by the South Asian community in isolation. Not even in South Asia, but also over here, especially over here, where our liberation and our joy and our celebrations and stories have to be bound up with and in solidarity with other folks who have the same experience. And so for me, when I got here, there was no sense of indigeneity, to Canada from from where I was sitting in India. So it was a huge learning to me to even know that there were indigenous people here. That's that's how much of a fabulous fiction has been spun about this country internationally. And then, you know, to actually learn about how bloody that history is and how ongoing that violence is, it became very important to start talking to and ask whether members, artists from the host nations found it valuable to converse with us, found it valuable to collaborate or, you know, be part of our stages. And it has been incredible to work with visual artists like Deborah Sparrow and Susan Point and curators like Jarrett Martineau and Jolene Mitten and Kamala Todd to really expand that conversation that it's South Asian, Black, and Indigenous voices entwined together and dreaming new possibility. That's really what we, you know, we hope to do at the festival is offer a model for that kind of intertwining. Therefore, the curatorial choices, for example, this year of bringing Amitav Ghosh, Naomi Klein, Robin Maynard, and Leanne Simpson in one sphere, um, because these are critical thinkers today about some of the most urgent things facing us, like climate change and sort of the crisis of the imagination that we face as a species. So, how do you dream yourself out of this? Is is really the question that the festival has asked?
1: Also, the amazing Aru Jaftab from uh, Pakistan for a festival named the Indian Summer Festival to have <laughs> yeah. a, it was just amazing to see the, the the full house. One of the things I was going to ask you, Sarish, you know, you and Laura in uh, starting up the festival, you walk through the arts and cultural landscape of. Um, this context, you know, provincially, federally, civically, and, you know, had the opportunities to give input into the city's tenure arts and culture plan. And uh, things have have shifted uh, somewhat, but there's so much uh, more to do, so much where to go in terms of uh, voices from BIPOC communities and uh, others that have um, traditionally had a fairly marginal space, but also the big institutions themselves have had limited spaces or have taken particular approaches. There's a kind of underdevelopment baked into the inertias of arts and cultural um, policy. I'm wondering if you, you know, having uh, run this festival for so long, your kind of perspectives on the sector broadly in terms of uh, what needs to happen, where things need to go.
2: I think when we began this festival, and I think, you know, when I said that I became South Asian when I came here, it's because I went from being completely immersed and surrounded by language and art and a way of being that I knew to this place where suddenly it did feel like everything that was central to me was to be found in the ethnic foods aisle in the supermarket of culture, you know, and... um and that was certainly what I saw happening to a lot of incredible artists that have been on our stages, is that no matter, um, you often find with BIPOC artists that they'll be mid-career, but they'll be considered emerging in terms of their cultural impact and often their economic impact. And that goes hand in hand. Um, the number of avenues open for publishing deals or Album or record deals or main stages at festivals are very few, so you may still be included, in, you know, inside a special aisle, but not given the sort of heft, promotional or economic, to actually effect any real change. And it's a kind of breathlessness that you see amongst BIPOC organizations and artists who have done so much, stretched so much, made it work on so little. And uh, that that's that speaks to structure. It speak to how speaks to how things are resourced, um, and to what expectations are of your participation in public life. And so, with our festival, we're not so small anymore, but we were able to give main stage spaces for artists who would normally not get that, and say, "Look, the headline. This should be the headliner, not you know." opening for somebody else. And, and I think uh, that shift is slow to come, and festivals like ours are extremely necessary to do the small and furious work of defending that. Um, but I am also increasingly very aware that there, is, there are huge amounts of infrastructure and capital that belong to the public from public institutions and public organizations that should be more reflective of who lives here. And who who the you know people of this land are uh, from a long long time ago and from now. So I think I'm quite interested in how someone tips that that stone now. Which at least I think there's a broader conversation, even though it's happening. I'm 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 also and, cognizant that this conversation of diversity and decolonization and reconciliation happens sometimes in this extremely vacuous fled nostril kind of way that is actually very insipid if you wanted to get get into that business in a in a felt heartful active way you stop talking and you start doing and I'm seeing a lot of dei statements and you know everybody's got one it's like the you know the early days of covid where everyone put put one of their covid policies out that that is in itself a rash that hides in the real illness and i'm i'm very interested in shifting those big pieces of how do we make sure that when we are we're not just uh, inviting more people into the same sort of uh, scarce pool of resources but we're actually questioning whether and and this has again why i say capital, resources for culture has to accompany uh, this sort of change. And I'm seeing some change, at least, you know, in in the civic level. We began with the City of Vancouver grants to look at different ways of organizing intake, so that you don't – just the very nature of the questions that you use to ask a grant or the kind of reporting you demand or the kind of uh, language that is used is like building a series of stairs in a – Gigantic padlock door to a building, and then saying everybody come in. So I think that there is so much work to be done there, and I'm I'm quite excited now, having done the the work of being a a small but furious thing to uh, to really see if we can move some of those those big stones along. I think it's a moment. There's, I'm I'm excited by things being shaken up
1: uh srish um you know you're you and laura and family teo are heading off on a little sabbatical for for a little while and you know you've been involved in you know really important ideas around the artist as healer and storytelling more broadly as you go away on this time of um Reflection after these uh, years of exhaustion from the COVID period, what are you know some of the things that you're thinking about uh, in terms of um, storytelling and artist as healer and other uh, projects that you might be conceiving of in the future?
2: I really feel more and more that if the reason to do art might be to offer some kind of healing, and that it ought to be taken more seriously as a healing force. And um, of late, the project that we piloted at Indian Summer, what you refer to artist is healer, was to bring traditional healers, the current sort of medical establishment as it is, and artists together to try and find potions for joy or remedies against despair. Because especially during COVID, we felt that a lot. So that's certainly something I think I'm going to be thinking about for the next, you know, for the next phase of wondering what how does one offer art because art can be offered as an elitist activity it can be offered in in some strange way like when i came to north america i found how much the art is an artist is prized as a single voice against society whereas when you think of the art that for example came out of my friend Badju and his community, or a a lot of uh, indigenous communities here, it is about the collective expression. So I'm curious about how one balances that now in in the change that needs to happen. I'm just more and more seeing the need for knitting and weaving and interconnectedness, and that storytelling ought to be a, a vehicle, really, to do that, and not in an abstract way, but actually to to spur action, because art and storytelling in of, in of themselves as a purely aesthetic exercise, I think the time for that is over. I I, I do feel there's it's a time now for museums without walls. And, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to spending this time on a sabbatical. A lot of this sabbatical coming up is actually, I describe it as a kind of pilgrimage I want to go to places and people and teachers who have mattered and just go and touch that source of meaning for for myself and my family and wander like like a pilgrimage because it feels like there is a, a, a need to re- center an intent in in working towards the art as a healing force. So yeah I, and not, in, not not in an overly noble way, but in an excited, you know, compassionate, celebratory way in in yeah. So I hope I can drink from some old wells and come back recharged to be able to share that.
1: Suresh, is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Well, I mean, <laughs> since you were there in that fateful first Skype call, I think you've. I just want to thank you for. <laughs> Not only for me, but for many other people, providing that exact kind of encouragement, which is, this is completely crazy, but I love you, (laughs) which I think is something that comes as a lift for anyone who is going to embark on such a thing. Because people who start projects like this are going to do it anyway, and they need to know someone loves them for it uh, and agrees that it is completely tilting against windmills but yeah so it's been it's been really lovely to go through that 12-year cycle with you and yeah now we now we're here I feel so uh, grateful for to
1: be taken along the ride and uh, my life has been so enriched and I've looked at the city in new ways as a result of uh, the kind of journey you took us on uh, you and Laura and the whole festival in terms of what it's given back to the city. So thank you for that and uh, uh, best wishes for whatever uh, comes next, but I'm uh, excited about whatever that will be.
2: Thank you. And I have, uh, yeah, I have my below the radar badge. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for joining us. I try to go below the radar myself for the next (laughs) little while. So I feel, I feel adequately Honored. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks, Sam.
0: Um. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Suresh Rao. Head to the show notes to read up on some of the resources mentioned in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcast listening app of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.